Today we continue in our series on Amos. We've been working towards a better understanding of how, as Christians, we are to live out biblical justice. In week one, we were reminded that as a church, we have been chosen by God to carry out his mission on earth. We were reminded that it isn't enough to just preach the gospel, but also we need to live out the gospel. Last week, we were reminded of our need to confess, both individually and corporately, for the ways in which we have participated in injustice. And this week, we turn toward how we might come to an understanding of biblical justice and how to go about living that out in our lives. We're going to continue in chapter 5 of Amos, looking at verses 18 through 24. Hear these words. Amos writes, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Our text for this week starts off with a sobering warning. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. This is the earliest known use of the expression, the day of the Lord. It occurs in many of the prophetic books. In Amos's day, the term was in popular, popular use for the time when the Lord would intervene and put Israel at the head of the nations. But Amos, as well as the prophets after him, clarify what it would mean for the Lord to visit his people. It means judgment upon them if they are unfaithful. In Amos, this term points towards the future, a coming judgment of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. And in Zephaniah, it points to the coming judgment on Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Amos is saying, you long for the day of the Lord, but you aren't living like it. In the New Testament, the, author, the authors apply the term as well, and they are alluding to the return of Christ. And so in seasons of challenge, of, of pain and brokenness, it's something that we hear Christians long for. They say, I long for the return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. And it's a great prayer, and it is something that we long for. But we must also ask ourselves the question, are we ready for Christ to return? Certainly we long for the promised redemption. Certainly we long for all that is broken in this world to be made right. But are we actually striving for these things in how we live our lives now? As followers of Jesus, we frequently talk about how God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. This is based on a conversation that God had with Abraham, which is found in Genesis chapter 12. And God models this behavior for us. God is not content in simply soaking up our worship, our offerings, our thanksgiving and praise. No, indeed, our God is involved in all of creation. 
and pours out his blessings abundantly and without boundaries. This is what we are called to participate in as followers of Jesus, to be a blessing to others. Earlier in the book of Amos, the prophet lists out to the people all of the things that they are neglecting. This includes the selling of people into slavery in order to pay small debts, ignoring the poor, practicing corrupt business practices. The powerful preyed upon the weak, and they altered the practices of the society so that the rich grew richer at the expense of the poor. In the midst of this injustice and inequity, the people would offer their sacrifices to God. They did not challenge the system, nor did they care about the poor. Likewise, today, injustice and inequality surround us. The list could be endless, and we could argue about what should or should not be on that list. We strive to have our worship pleasing to the Lord as we seek not only to sing God's praises corporately together, but to share God's love and grace with those around us. Sometimes this means that we stand against injustice and fight for equality for all. We do this so that we can experience the fullness of God's kingdom, and so can everyone else. Perhaps the most famous line from the book in Amos 5, uh, from the book of Amos is in chapter 5, verse 24, where it reads, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The context of this powerful statement is a prophetic denunciation of the sacrifices and offerings of a people who have failed to keep the covenant which is constituted by justice and fairness. Throughout Amos chapters 5 and 6, the prophet lashes out against those who have become rich at the expense of the poor and against public, hollow displays of piety. According to Amos, God says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Their religious devotion is meaningless if it is accompanied by unfair taxes on the poor, backdoor bribes, and working against those who are in need. And so because of these sentiments, this passage has become an important source for observers of contemporary American religious and political culture. Amos almost certainly would disapprove of the concentration of wealth and the corresponding increase in poverty. And he would rage against the displays of self-importance and exceptionalism in some quarters of American life. According to Amos, a nation is exceptional by the measure of how it cares for the lowest members of society. And a nation of religious hypocrisy and economic injustice is one that will perish. Martin Luther King Jr. famously invoked the phrase, let justice roll down like water in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963, in which he addresses the moral laxity of his fellow Southern clergymen during the civil rights movement. And so today we join in asking the question, how do we do justice? Justice means giving every person what they are due impartially, fairly, equitably. Often in the Bible, there's a quartet of individuals who are mentioned in connection with doing justice. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. 
The brunt of injustice was often carried by these four groups of individuals. Often people in these groups were only days away from starvation in the event of some sort of social disruption. In some ways, not much has changed in all of these millennia. Prejudice and injustice are still often directed towards those who don't look like us or those whose socioeconomic condition is lower than that of middle-class America. But the question for today is, in addition to gospel proclamation, what do the people of God do to defend the cause of the oppressed? As I mentioned in our first week of Amos, justice has turned into a polarizing word. What justice looks like to one set of people might look entirely different to another set. It's a word in which the dictionary definition doesn't communicate the complexities behind how justice is or is not played out in our society. It seems like we say this every four years now, but we live in an incredibly polarized society and the temptation is to view everything through a partisan political lens. It's strong. And we see it today. Culturally, we see a spectrum of justice theories that range anywhere from individualism, where we are the product of our own choices, to collectivism, where we are the product of the social structures around us. And somewhere along this spectrum, we find the ways in which justice is currently carried out in our world. But further study into each of these theories leaves us wanting and leaves us hungry for a better justice. Well, I have to say I am incredibly grateful that in the week leading up to the start of this series, Tim Keller, who is a far more experienced pastor, as well a uh, highly regarded theologian and writer, uh, he planted a, a thriving, a successful church in New York City. Um, he wrote a paper on biblical justice. And in it, he lays the scriptural foundation of biblical justice and then uses that lens to critically analyze the four dominant justice theories that are most commonly played out today. So this week, we are going to look at those five facets of biblical justice that Keller lays out. And so in this next section of this message, uh, I am very indebted to the work that uh, he has done in this paper. So what is biblical justice? Keller argues that in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from each of the secular alternatives without ignoring, any of, without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians, as a whole, know very little about biblical justice despite its prominence in scripture. This ignorance, he argues, is having two effects. First, there are large populations of the church that still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. Second, many Christians, particularly, particularly in younger generations, recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which may have elements of Christian truth, but these approaches without a Christian perspective introduce distortions into their practice and lives. 
We've seen in our brief look at the text of Amos, as well as in some of the study of the minor prophets leading up to this, uh, this series, going back to uh, specifically Micah 6, chapter 8, that Amy preached on several weeks ago, that doing justice is absolutely vital in living our lives as an act of worship. So what does biblical justice look like? Here are the five facets from Keller's, from Keller's paper. Community, equity, corporate responsibility, individual responsibility, and advocacy. First, community. Others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. Keller argues that the Bible depicts the human world as a profoundly interrelated community. So we are called to live in such a way that the community is strengthened. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke uh, puts all of the teaching on the righteous in the book of Proverbs into a concise and practical principle that states, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The laws of the Old Testament are a case in point. Keller argues that landowners were commanded to not maximize profits by harvesting all the sheaves or by picking all of the olives or grapes. Further, the owner was to leave produce in the field for the workers and the poor to take through their labor, not through charity. When the text reads that these uh, produce were to be for the poor, it uses a phrase that indicates ownership. Thus, Keller argues to treat all of your profits and assets as individ individualistically yours is mistaken. Because God owns all of our wealth, we are just stewards of it. Therefore, the community has some claim on it. However, it is not to be confiscated. We are to acknowledge the claim and voluntarily be radically generous. Keller points out that this view of property, uh, property does not fit well with either a capitalist or a socialist economy. Second, equity. Everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. This plays itself out in a couple of ways. First, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22, we're told you are to have the same law for the foreigner as the native born. This was a pretty radical statement at the time that it was written. And likewise, if you consider how our society works today, this is an incredibly radical statement that should cause us to ask some questions. Second, people should be treated equally regardless of their socioeconomic status. Isaiah 33, 15 says, those who speak with equity keep their hands from accepting bribes. Bribery is unjust because it does not treat the poor in the same way that it treats the wealthy. Any system of justice or government in which decisions or outcomes are made by how much money one has is unjust. Other examples of inequity are unfair business practices. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 speak of unfair wages. 
Amos chapter 6 speaks of unjust scales, of people selling the chaff even with the wheat, cutting corners to provide an inferior product in order to make more money but not serve customers is to do injustice. Third, corporate responsibility. I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. We talked a bit about this concept last week when we talked about individual and corporate confession. Amos' words here aren't just for a select few. It's to an entire nation who neglected their responsibility to live out justice and righteousness. Yes, there were some who were more directly culpable than others, but even those who were silent, who were turning the other way, shared in that guilt. This isn't just something that we see in just Amos, but we see corporate responsibility in other places in the Bible. There are times that God holds families, groups, and nations corporately responsible for the sins of individuals. In Daniel, we're told that while there's no evidence that he personally participated in them, we see Daniel repenting for the sins that were committed by his ancestors. In, Samuel chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, Israel is held responsible for injustices that were um, done to the Gibeonites by King Saul, even though by that time he had already died. There are three aspects to this. The first, corporate responsibility. Keller points out that in Joshua 7, Achan's family did not do any of the stealing but they helped him to become the kind of man that would steal. The Bible's emphasis on the importance of family for character formation implies that the rest of the family cannot wholly avoid responsibility for the behavior of a member. Second is corporate participation. Sinful actions not only shape us, but they shape the people around us. And so when we sin, we affect those who are around us, which reproduces sinful patterns. And third, institutionalized sin. Socially institutionalized ways of life become weighted in favor of the powerful and oppressive over those with less power. Sometimes injustice can become so embedded in our societal systems. Because we are imperfect people, we create imperfect systems. The fourth facet of biblical justice is individual responsibility. I am ultimately responsible for all of my sins, but not for all of my outcomes. The Bible does not teach us that our success or failure is wholly dependent due to our individual choices. Poverty, for example, can be brought on by bad choices, but it can also be brought on because of environmental factors. Famine, pandemic, national recessions. Likewise, the wealthy aren't wealthy solely as a direct result of making the right choices. We are not in complete control of our life out life's outcomes. In the months following the shelter-in-place order, the number of people filing for unemployment in our country skyrocketed. We certainly don't blame anyone for losing their job due to the pandemic. But despite the reality of corporate responsibility and evil, 
our salvation lies in our own personal faith in Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says that in ordinary human law, we must be held responsible and punished for our own sins, not those of our parents. We are indeed the partially the product of our communities, but not wholly. We can resist their patterns. And so the reality of corporate sin does not take away our own individual responsibility. Nor does individual responsibility disprove the reality of corporate responsibility. To deny either, Keller argues, is to fall outside of what the Bible teaches us about justice. Fifth is advocacy. We must have a special concern for the poor and the marginalized. While we are not to show favor to any, we are to have special concern for the powerless. This is a theme that is echoed throughout scripture. Proverbs 31, eight and nine says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights to the poor and the needy. The Bible doesn't tell us to speak up for the rich and the powerful. And that's not because they're any less important as people before God, but it's because they don't need us to do this. The playing field isn't even. And so if we do not advocate for those who are oppressed, there cannot be equality. So what does that mean for us? How in the world do we go about practically living this out? Well, unfortunately, Tim Keller hasn't written that paper yet. That's coming next month. Um, and I know this is heavy stuff. I know this is challenging to hear, and I know that we're all exhausted from what this year has dealt us thus far. But we can't shy away from this topic. If we are going to live out our purpose statement as a church to love God and love others, if we truly want to live, uh, if we truly want to live to see our vision statement, seek the peace and welfare of the city, then we must be involved in seeking justice. And so the first thing that I would suggest is that we take a posture of ignorance towards justice and to learn. To do justice, we need to learn from history and to learn from the experience of others. It would be easy for me to stand up here today as a white male and claim that we live in a world with equal opportunities, a world where systemic racism and white privilege doesn't exist. Because if my worldview is only informed by my own personal experience, it's an incredibly limited, narrow, and self-centered worldview. If you enjoy academic papers, then I'd highly encourage you to find this paper from Tim Keller on biblical justice. You'll get a much more in-depth picture of his facets, as well as a better understanding of how it's different and better than the four main competing justice theories that are currently at play in the world. If reading isn't your thing, then there is a great podcast from Phil Vischer and Sky Jathani called The Holy Post. And in their most recent episode, they summarize the key themes from this paper and uh, try to make it a little bit more palatable to the less academic philosophical reader. 
If you're interested in learning more about the history of inequality in the public school system, there's a new season of the podcast Serial called Nice White Parents that attempts to navigate the challenges of diverse views on what justice in American education looks like. The point here is we need to be learners and we need to hear from people who have experienced life differently than us. Learn about the real life experience of others. Learn about how history has shaped our current reality. Our neighborhood here is a great example of this. I just learned about this in preparation for this sermon. Perhaps you've heard the term racial covenant. This practice was widely used in the city of Minneapolis for over a half a century as a way of making land ownership illegal for people of color in many parts of our city. In fact, our neighborhood here, the Kenny neighborhood, which was developed in the late 1940s and early 1950s, many of these properties were developed with these racial covenants attached to the deeds of the homes. Thankfully, this practice, along with all other forms of legalized segregation of the Jim Crow era, have been outlawed. But does this mean that American society is free from any and all systems of ongoing discrimination? It's a good question to get answers to. And if we are the people of God, are charged to let justice roll down like waters, should we rather, should we not want to learn rather than assume? And if I learn about injustice, I have the opportunity to play my part in correcting it so that people made in the image of God are treated with respect, dignity, and the fairness that they deserve. I'd like to learn how my perceptions and experiences differ from people who immigrate to this country. Empathy is a Christ-like behavior, and surely we must learn something of the, in, of the injustices people experience. If we would put ourselves in their shoes and do justice, at the intersection of scriptural truth and the realities of human existence, we have the opportunity to do justice. The second thing that we can do in shifting our attitudes towards the goal of justice is to seek it. Theologian Alec Motier suggests that this word, seek, involves setting new objectives and priorities. Philippians 2, 4 tells us that we should not look only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Again, this is more than a passive nodding of the head, but it's a determination to be part of the solution, to do what is within my power to see that justice rolls down like water. So the word seek is not passive. No bystanders allowed, no indifference tolerated. As justice-loving followers of Jesus, we are bound to pursue the just treatment of others. My aim, my goal, my prayer is that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what it means to seek justice. The third thing that we can do to seek justice involves our position towards the victims of injustice and that is defend. If my attitude is truly one of seeking justice, 
then this follows next in line. When I learn of those who are experiencing oppression, I will come to their defense. I will use my mouth, my written words, my position of privilege. I will take the resources that God has given me. And when I see people being treated unjustly, I will defend them. My common humanity and my commitment to Christ leads me to this. Now, I get that social media can be a horrible place right now. A sounding board for people sharing ugliness and ignorance. But social media can also be a means whereby we as believers speak the truth in love. And sometimes that involves making injustice known. Sometimes it means speaking truth to power. Now, I'm certainly not going to stand here and encourage you to sign up for a Twitter account or use social media more frequently. But for all of its ugliness, social media enables us to be influencers on a personal level, often towards those in whom our personal contact is limited. So if you do use social media, use your voice to promote justice. Outside of that, talk about issues of justice with your families and friends. Consider your relationships and natural spheres of influence. Don't let it just be a digital conversation. Next, think holistically about justice. I mentioned in week one of this series that at times I make a mental note of the things that I often take for granted in life. And I'd like to encourage you this week to do the same and consider how might thinking about justice affect where I shop? Are the employees treated with dignity? Are they compensated fairly for their work? Is this business cutting corners to maximize profit while offering an inferior product? Am I being a good steward of the Earth's natural resources? How are seeking justice and equality in our schools? How does seeking justice affect where I live and how I interact with my neighbor? Fifth, Join the people who are already doing this work. Thankfully, there are others who are already committed to doing this work, and we can partner alongside those individuals and groups. Be involved in your local community organization. I've lived in Central Neighborhood for five years now, and honestly, I'm ashamed to say that I have not once attended a Neighborhood Association meeting. I've thought about it, but in the busyness of life, it's not something that I have personally prioritized. That's something that I have personally committed to changing. Here in the Kenny neighborhood, there's a group called Kenny Organizing for Racial Equity. All of our neighborhoods in Minneapolis have associations that are created for the betterment of those communities. And if you want to see justice in your communities, I'd encourage you to get involved. Join the church in helping to serve under-resourced under communities by volunteering at Community Emergency Service. We don't have to be tasked with starting something new. There are people and organizations that have been faithful to the cause of justice, so let's support and learn from these groups. God's anger in Amos was because the religious festivals were not followed up by just actions. God gave the means to reverse the people's systems of injustice, to end inequity and oppression. 
But the river of people that were supposed to flow out of the temple to fulfill God's promises walked out of the temple and did nothing. You see, to be the church is not just about being in a worship service, going through the motions. It's about acting in faith in your everyday life. It's about doing good works by faith. It's turning away from sin when tempted and repenting where you fail. It's forgiving as you have been forgiven. It's not looking in judgment on others for what they have done or not done, what they have or don't have, or even the life that they choose to live. It's looking on others in compassion and putting the best construction on things. It's being in prayer. It's reading God's word. It's standing up in defense of the weak, the powerless, the voiceless of this world. It's letting justice and righteousness flow like a never-ending stream of water. The life of worship is not simply going to church. The life of worship is to be the church in the world. Amen.